WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 123. Today's episode is dropping just days away from the world title deciding Rip Curl WSL Finals at Lower Trestles. The event window starts on September 8th with the five best men's and women's surfers of the season battling one another for the undisputed world title. The matchups as they stand on the women's side. Match one will feature world number four, Brisa Hennessy, taking on world number five, Stephanie Gilmore. The winner will take on world number three, Tatiana Weston-Webb. The winner of that will take on world number two, Joanne DeFay. And the winner of that will take on current world number one, Carissa Moore, in a best two out of three for the world title. On the men's side, match one will feature world number four, Italo Fajera, up against world number five, Kanoa Igarashi. The winner will take on world number three, Ethan Ewing. The winner of that will take on world number two, Jack Robinson. And the winner of that will face current world number one, Felipe Toledo, in a best two out of three for the world title. The waiting period for the Rip Curl WSL Finals at Lower Trestles commences in just a couple days on September 8th, and the event will be streamed live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. All right, episode 123. Today's guest is someone who, perhaps more than anyone else, between surfing there, contest directing there, and poring over the related forecasts and charts, understands the wave at Lower Trestles. A former elite-level surfer himself, he then transitioned into a big-wave icon before going on to manage and coach some of the best surfers on the planet. We will absolutely have an in-depth conversation about his life in the future, but today's episode is spent solely focused on mining his insights for the upcoming Rip Curl WSL Finals. 
Please enjoy the lineups conversation with California's Mike Parsons. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. your <laughs> boxing. All right. So we have longtime tour surfer, big wave icon, and lowers guru, Mike Snips Parsons on the line of today. Snips, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Stoked to be a part of the show. I'm a big fan of the show and uh, happy to be here. Oh, well, that, that, that makes me feel really good. Huge fan of yours, too. And I guess before we get into it, I, I always like to do a little scene set. You know, where are you at today for recording? Who are you hanging out with? What have you been up to? Um, yeah, I'm in San Clemente at home. Uh, today, just had a little surf at T Street, which is five minutes down the road. Uh, with my son, who's 14 now, as a frothing drum surfer, and my wife. So we had a little family surf this morning and uh, just spent the weekend up in Mammoth in the mountains doing a little fishing and hiking. And uh, previous to that, we had a really good swell at Lowers uh, last week. So got a bunch of waves down there. And kind of just we're in the middle of a bit of a heat wave. So it looks like the WSL finals is going to be hot and uh, lots of swell forecasted, so just super excited for that. All the uh, guys and girls are in town warming up at lowers. So I've been watching a bunch of that. It's been uh, it's been a good lead up so far. Waves aren't very good now, but um, looks good in a few days. That's very cool. And, and you know, before we get into it too, just because you brought up T Street, I'm I'm always reminded of the Bill Ballard film about uh, Matt Archibald Archie, which which you feature in pretty heavily. And I think it was you who said, you know, San Clemente is is such a cool town to train to be an elite level surfer because we'd all go down to T street in the morning. And then when the wind would hit it, we'd all go to lowers in the afternoon. I'm pretty sure you said that. I, and I'm wondering how, how, how true that is today, because I think back and I'm like, man, if they're all at T street in the morning, I should have gone to lowers in the morning and just avoided the, the pack. Oh God. Yeah. T streets are rad little stomping grounds for, uh, for everyone, all levels of surfing. But back in the day, uh, Archie, the Fletchers, Dino, um, uh, Shane Beshin um, and his brother, just an incredible crew, used to surf down there early mornings. And then when like Martin Potter and Tom Carroll would come to town, they would stay in San Clemente and always surf out there. So a lot of good memories of, of those times. And it's just a really consistent wave. It's not very good, but it wedges up on this little reef and it's good on high tide. It's always something to ride. So it's kind of our little go-to if you want a 20-minute session, hour session. You don't have to bike all the way down to lowers. It kind of prepares you for a lot of different breaks around the world. Like when I did the tour, it was it was really similar to some of the waves in Japan or Brazil. And so it was a good little training grounds. If your boards went good at T Street, they usually went good around the world. Um, super hard wave to ride, frustrating, like goes flat and then <laughs> peaks up and you got to jump across sections. It was actually good training for Sandy Beach and Hawaii. Um, so yeah, if you can surf good at T Street, you're you're on your way to being a really good groveler. It's not a great wave, but super fun beach and good vibes um, and an insanely competitive group of surfers, um, especially nowadays. It's just a hotbed of of young talent, male and female. I love it. Well, Snips, you've been uh, kind enough to join us for this uh, very special Rip Curl WSL Finals 
preview episode, you know, y- your career as a professional surfer, big wave icon, super coach, etc. It, it may make some appearances here in this episode, but I want um, you know listeners to rest assured that we're going to schedule a full deep dive episode into you in the future. But for now, we are recording on Thursday, September 1st. This episode's going to drop on the eve of the 2022 Rip Curl WSL Finals, so it'll be on Tuesday, September 6th. And while the call for what day we run obviously resides with our head of sport, Jesse Miley Dyer, what are you seeing as of today as as the most likely run day for the finals? It looks really tricky to me um, at this point uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, you have a lot of similar size swell coming. You kind of have two or three swell events uh, over the waiting period. Um, there's a dropping swell on the 8th that could be still pretty good. Then you have more long period coming in on the 9th. Um, and then that swell kind of tapers a little on the 10th, but still has potential that day. Then you have a slow taper, but possibly a little tropical swell mixing in. And then you have another long period swell around the 14th, 15th. That one's just sorting to look stronger on the charts right now. Um, so the good news is there's going to be good options. It's not going to be as big as last year by the looks of it, but I like lowers in that sort of four to five foot range anyway. When it gets too big, it tends to wash through and close out a little bit and doesn't have as good of a wall. So Jesse's got good problems. A um, lot of, lot of uh, <laughs> last year was hard too. I think she nailed it by waiting um, for the day that they ran because the day before they ran last year's finals was pretty good, little weird. She waited and nailed the day of the year. It hasn't been that good uh, since that day last year. But I do, I mean, I am excited about the forecast. I think it's going to be good lowers in the four to five foot range. Things to consider are there's potential south wind on one of those early days, but the wind models usually aren't that accurate a week out. So I don't trust those yet. Got to watch that tropical swell. It could mess things up, make really southeast energy come in and, and play. You also have the potential for northwest swell coming down the coast which is what we have right now, which makes the water cold. And it, it's not that good for lowers. For lowers, you want a pure south swell with nothing else in the way from about 210 degrees is ideal, maybe all the way to 220. When it's a little more southwest, the right gets longer and better. When the swells are too south right off of Chile, like the 180 swells, the right closes out quicker, left kind of pushes out to sea. So there's a lot of factors. Um, and the other big factor is tide. You've got Low tide in the afternoon at the early part of the waiting period, which I don't like because lowers really loses energy on low tide and it gets softer. Um, it really gets good from about a two foot tide to about a five foot tide. So that's when it moves in on the rocks and has more power. Um, later in the waiting period, 14, 15 has better tides. You got a five foot high tide midday. So you almost could run the whole event with two and a half to three feet of tide, which I really like that. But that swell is a lot further out there, but we'll know have a really good idea by the time uh, this airs of what that swell looks like. So a lot of good options, um, a lot of things to consider. It's it seems really straightforward. It lowers the swell comes from eight thousand miles away. It's it's easy to know that it's coming and it's going to be there. But the details of wind and tide and northwest wind swell or tropical swell, some things that could mess it up are are something that they should uh, highly consider. Yeah, and you kind of answered this next question a little bit, but you know, as someone who arguably has more experience than anyone in terms of surfing the wave and making event calls and pouring over the forecasting data, you kind of touched on this, but 
you know, if, if you had a blank slate, what would you define as the ideal conditions for high performance surfing at lower trestles? Because for some people they're like, oh, bigger, the better. But as you pointed out, sometimes that washes through there. So if you had to kind of dreamcast a forecast for this event, wave height, swell direction, period, tides, wind, like what, what would be the Mike Parsons special? Yeah, I like this time of year the most, uh, September. This is a great month because we tend to get this hotter weather and we get like a northeast flow in the morning of wind, which is straight offshore, but light. So nowadays, a lot of the surfers like onshore wind for airs and that. But what, what a northeast wind early does is it creates super clean conditions for turns. And then by about midday, the wind sort of settles and stops. And by late afternoon, it's usually like a light, light onshore, which stays glassy and good. So love this time of year. But ideal everything would be about three to three and a half feet of pure swell. Um, I like like 16 second interval. So I don't really think it's best on the first day of the swell when it's a bigger period. It's more inconsistent. That 18, 19 second stuff, it has more power, but the swells, the uh, sets are further apart, right? So once the energy drops a little, the interval um, to that 16, 15 second range, you get better consistency. So I love three to three and a half feet of swell, 16 seconds, maybe even drop into 15 for consistency. 210 to 220 in direction. You don't want shadowing from Tahiti, but sometimes the swells will run up next to New Zealand and they'll, they'll be really good for South Shore Hawaii. And those ones are also really good for lowers because it makes the right line up all the way, halfway to churches. So those are the ones I love when it's five feet, four to five feet. And yeah, that's usually about three and a half feet of swell at 16 seconds. If it's Pure south swell, like I mentioned earlier, no wind swell in the way. Um, that's when you just get ruler edge, perfect lowers. And we've had a few events that have had that. One that comes to mind was, I think, Luke Egan won um, one of the early ones, a Boost Mobile Pro. It was phenomenal. Uh, last year, I felt was a teeny bit too big, especially on the lower tide. Everyone kind of had to go right. And it was, uh, it was really tricky and hard. I think the performances were a little bit conservative because... It was hard to get a good one. It was long paddle outs. I feel like it's better at four feet where there's more opportunity. I think the surfers will uh, surf better. Um, and I think we're looking at that this year. Right, right. And I'm glad you brought up the Luke Egan year because, you know, my memory is a little fuzzy, but yeah, geez, you either contest directed or at least aided contest directors in the call for a number of years at Lower Trestles, whether it was Bill Billabong or Boost or, or probably Hurley and I know you mentioned Luke Egan. I want to say that was like 2001, 2002, maybe. I think so. But are there any other, you know, memorable events for you, you know, in terms of, you know, maybe how good the waves got or even on the other hand, like how challenging it got, whether it was wave conditions or fog or whatever else? Yeah, there's some challenges. I, I remember one year the final was not very good because of the low tide with uh, Kelly Slater and Poncho Sullivan. Um, that was tough because Kelly was super smart, jumped on a few waves, Poncho waited for sets and got nothing. There was a really great year, I remember, an insane final with Kelly and, and Taj Burrow was such a good final. I think that was one of the Boost Mobile Pro events. That was just so competitive. Those guys were going back and forth in perfect waves. Um, the Luke Egan, I think it was um, maybe Mick Campbell he was against in the final, or I think it was two goofy footers, and I think Luke won. That sounds right. And yeah. that had a hurricane swell and a south swell mix. So you had this crazy hurricane swell with shorter period, and you had a big southern hemi swell all in the same day, and the surf was pumping. I remember Danny Wills was surfing incredible that year, too, and Sonny Garcia. 
um, perfect surf, sunny day, hot, like 90 degree weather. That was one of the best years ever. Um, there was another year where Kelly got barreled in the final. He's won it, what, like six times. He's had so many yeah. insane performances out there. Um, so that was memorable. A few, you know, a few other really good ones. There was one or two finals that were tough where we had a super strong Northwest wind. I think, um, maybe Taj was in the final, um, of that one. It wasn't that good. So yeah, ideally you want those, those mid to higher tides later in the day. So the finals are really good because that drained out low tide is, is never a great look for lowers. Right. You know, with the rib curl WSL finals being, it's a single day event between the best surfers of the season for the world title. And, you know, while it's not your call on when we run this year, I'm curious if you've thought about whether, you know, having been a contest director in the past, is it, you think it's an easier thing to pick the single best day out of an entire window or, or was it maybe easier to have to not have that pressure and just manage like a bunch of days as we've had to do at events in the past? I think it's way easier to manage a bunch of days. Nailing a single day is so tough because, you know, as, as a contest director, you're always, you know, the bird in the hand is kind of the thing, right? If you've got good surf in front of you, you usually run something, usually go where this is really hard because... I had some experience as the big wave commissioner, and that was like this, a, a single day picking those epic one-day events. And they're so hard because there's so many factors that go into it. And and so if you let a few good days go and you wait for that second swell and it doesn't pan out, then you're boxed into a corner where your one day isn't the day you were looking for. So I think it's way harder to pick one single day, especially when you've, you know, you've got to run a pretty decent amount of time that day. So you can't just stop if the wind gets funky or something comes up that you didn't expect, like fog delays, things like that. It's a lot tougher to consider all that stuff and nail just one perfect day. So yeah, I think that's more challenging. We have this really incredible collection of, you know, the WSL final five this year. We've got, you know, Kanoa and Steph and Italo and Brisa and Ethan and Tatiana, Jack, Joanne, Felipe and Carissa. And they've had to perform, you know, in all these different ways throughout the year and perform very, very well just to get an opportunity to come to lower trestles and, and and compete for a world title. Obviously, surfers at the elite level use different types of equipment at different kinds of waves. Do you foresee, you know, any of the final five surfers on either side, men's or women's, like focusing in on on really specific equipment for lower trestles? Or would it be more of a case of, look, my my high performance boards that I've used in, in other similarly positioned waves throughout the year are, are what I'm going to use here because I'm confident on it? It's a super good question. It depends on the forecast a little bit. And judging on the forecast we've got, I think they're regular high performance boards that say they would use in Brazil or El Salvador or a few of those other types of events, um, maybe even small J Bay would work really good at lowers. But if it doesn't come through quite as big as forecasted, that's when it gets a little trickier because lowers can be a pretty soft wave. And some of the best equipment can be something that's a touch more concave, a little faster and maybe a little looser, you know, even more so than a board, say you would use in the wave pool where it's a little more sucky or a wave like snapper that has that steep wall lowers can be a wave where you need to generate speed and be quick and get around sections and use a board that's a touch faster, looser and, and quicker. So it's a great question. I think for the most part, the regular 
sort of go-to short boards will be the ones they ride. But a lot of that depends on the forecast. That's interesting too. And I mean, on the board topic, just to stick on this for a second, like of those 10 surfers, you know, you got five that are riding Sharp Eyes, Marcio Zovi, which is like an incredible story in and of itself. Two are on uh, DHDs, so one's on Timmy Patterson's, uh, one's on Glenn Pang, and then uh, one's on Mayhem. You know, a lot of them have sort of local bases in and around San Clemente, you know, Mayhem probably being, you know, the most associated with lower trestles. You've worked with surfers at the elite level in the past, like, like Mick Fanning, specifically when it comes to lower and whether it was that year or another year, Mick is sort of famously jumped on Mayhems as well, just because of, of how in tune those kind of crafts are with, with lower trestles. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about that process of testing different shapers, the difference between testing them for a normal CT event versus the finals and, and things like that. That's, that's another really good question. Um, yeah, I think Matt's boards are unbelievable in California. And they, when I spoke about the smaller waves and generated that really quick burst of speed when you need it, his boards have been amazing at that. And Mix experimented with some of Chloe's old boards at lowers. And I know he took some of those back and showed Darren. And, and I know that Mick's board in 2015 when he won um, was definitely influenced by, by Matt's shapes and riding those boards earlier that uh, pre, in previous years. Uh, Marcio at Sharp Eye, he's close to here and his boards tend to go really well at lowers. All of his athletes look like their boards are glued to their feet. You know, if you think about Jack or Kanoa or Joanne, Tati, their, their boards look magic at lowers. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Felipe, their equipment's going to be insane there. Um, Darren's boards to me, like for Ethan and Steph, Darren will, will know that lowers can be a bit gutless. So I would imagine uh, Ethan and Steph's boards will be a, maybe a touch more of a small wave version that they ride at lowers. So yeah, I think the shapers will make adjustments for California waves. Like everyone in California always says like they, they take a board to Australia and like, damn, this board was so good. And even when I was doing the tour, that was the case. It would go so good at lowers and you'd get to snapper and you'd be like, oh no. I need more rocker. This wave's tighter. So lowers is, is its own beast a little bit. But um, I think at this point, all 10 surfers are pretty clued in to what the wave's like and their shapers are as well. The Rip Curl WSL Finals has this unique and in a lot of ways in surfing, really innovative format that we saw for the first time last year, where the fourth and fifth seed surf in the opening match. The winner of that surfs against the third seed. The winner of that surfs against the second seed. And then the winner of that surfs in a best two out of three against the the number one seed for the world title. And it's it was interesting talking about the format before we actually ran the event. And, you know, we'd talk with, um, you know, Pat O'Connell about it, or we'd talk with a lot of the surfers about it. And we'd sort of like fan cast, like, well, do you want to be number one and just go into the water cold where, you know, your challenger's got all this momentum? Do you want to be in the middle, et cetera, et cetera? And it's funny to kind of go back and listen to some of those answers before we ran the finals last year. We run the finals and now virtually every surfer I talk to is like, well, as we should have known, like being the number one seed is has all the advantage because you just have to win two heats and you have the world title. You get a third one if you need it. You're refreshed. You're ready to go. But I, I'm curious to get your take as, as a former elite level competitor as well. Number one, do you agree? Number one position in this format is ideal. But if not, 
where would you want to sit in those rankings uh, just from your own kind of competitive psychology? I definitely agree. uh, As we learned last year, I mean, a a lot of people were talking that way, like, hey, having momentum and getting a heat or two under your belt. But you're talking about the best five men and best five women at this event only. So momentum's out the door. It's it's every heat forward is a huge advantage. You're, you're, You're coming up against the best right off the bat. So as we learned, like, Stephanie's opening heat last year, she didn't look quite ready to go. And and it was early in the morning and and it caught her off guard and she was out. So it's like, had she have had won that heat, she may have, you know, went all the way to the final. You never know. So those are the things like being number one is a massive advantage. We saw Medina, he waited, he wasn't down there. He walked down to the beach half hour before the heat, didn't watch anything, probably watched at home, was completely fresh. And, you know, Felipe had to battle to get to that spot, got into the finals. You could tell he was even with the the, the one heat he got through. To me, he looked a little fatigued by the last heat. So run to run the table from fourth or fifth is is going to be incredibly tough, no matter how good you are. Um, huge advantage to be, to be in that number one spot. And uh, yeah, momentum is one thing, but the heats out there are quick, you know, 35 minutes. It's, you've got to be in rhythm. You can't miss a set. Huge advantage to, to, to be seated higher, no doubt. Very cool. We're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors and we'll be right back. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. So 
So as we mentioned in the intro, we're going to have a full in-depth Mike Parsons episode scheduled in the future. But for the purposes of this next segment, I was wondering if we could just skim a little bit off the top and, and get the lay of the land in terms of what you do these days for a living in terms of management, coaching, and, and who you've been working with recently. Yeah, so um, currently I work for uh, IMG as a manager. Um, as a manager, I've managed Kanoa Igarashi, Lakey Peterson, Caroline Marks, Jackson Dorian, and Cade Madsen. I was brought into that about ten years ago. I met uh, Kaloe Andino's manager, um, and he brought me into the loop to sort of slowly build their surf program. So the first surfer I signed was Kanoa, and then Lakey, and then more recently, Caroline Jackson and Kate. So it's been really fun uh, learning from him. We also, our group also manages Kai Lenny. Um, so that's kind of our group. So I spend a lot of my time uh, managing those those athletes and their contracts and their scheduling and doing things for their sponsors and helping out with all their activations and things like that. And then on the coaching front, uh, I coach Kaloe and Dino, Caroline Marks and Lakey Peterson. This year, I went to the first five events with those three surfers. And then at the back end of the year, I sort of picked and choose. So yes, I've been lucky. Those are the two jobs that I have. It keeps me really busy. And um, they kind of go hand in hand because I need to be around the events for the managing side. And I love the coaching because that's the my background and what I'm passionate, the most passionate about is these surf contests and being there. It's ultra competitive and love Love everything about pro surfing. It's an awesome job. That's perfect. And and you know the reason I, I kind of wanted to set that up is because I'd love to get your insights on how the 2022 season went. Just from the the you're so close to not only your own athletes, but you competed yourself previously, and you know so many of the other athletes. But it was it was kind of a wild ride in a lot of ways. You know, it was the first full-flighted year of the Redesign Championship Tour. We we shot everyone out of a cannon at, at Pipeline in sort of peak season. We had five events. There was the mid-season relegation that sharpened the men's and women's fields by a third. The return to G-Land, El Salvador, you know, pumping Jeffrey's Bay and the return of women to Jopu after 16 years. It, it was a lot. And, and, you know, I'll start with when it, when it comes to your own charges, whether it's the surfers you manage or just the surfers you coaches or a blend of both, did you do anything in particular to prepare for 2022 with them that was maybe different than you'd done in previous years? Um, not so much, um, but maybe we should have. It was, it was really hard. I think the, uh, just the sheer how quick it went and how much travel there was this year and how everyone was globe trotting around the world so much. I think that was the biggest challenge. So to keep everyone mentally sharp and really excited about each event, that was the biggest challenge because of all the travel and some of the events we were arriving like the day before their heats and stuff. Whereas in the past, especially like when they got to Brazil, it was, it was one day of travel because it's so hard to change the tickets from El Salvador. Uh, I remember Lakey had to wake up and compete the very next morning in the first heat. So she arrived at night, had to surf the heat the next morning. Those were the those were the hard things, I think, this year to to, um, to manage all that. So in preparation, we spent a lot of time in Hawaii because that was the focus. Um, you know, you've got five events before that midseason cut, which was which was gnarly because they were all I felt in a certain type of way. So Hawaii and that type of surfing was the most important training to do because Margaret's is a lot like Hawaii. So three of the five events were in kind of what we would call heavy water waves. 
Um, so we spent a lot of time in Hawaii and, and just tried to put time in at, at Pipe and Sunset, um, especially on the girls' side because those were new events for them. So yeah, it was good. We learned a lot. I think all the on the girls' side, I think next year is going to be awesome because they got that experience. And as you mentioned, uh, Tahiti as well. So that was cool. And on the men's side, I think um, everyone's going to be really prepared to be just on their game next year at the start of the year because one slip up, you know, we saw a lot of good surfers, really good surfers that didn't make that cut. And if they could have those those moments back, just be a little more prepared for those first five events because you got to come out of the gates firing because as we learned, you know, it's it's five events is quick to for that cut and, and some really good surfers missed out. Yeah. And it, it was fascinating too, you know, in the sense of uh, we're coming out of sort of a COVID pandemic, economic impact, everything. So that put even kind of further strain on just, you know, even how expensive it was to travel and, and all these things are really, really upended from what it was before. But yeah, I think you're right. You know, like, like even kind of going back through the rankings from the start of the year and, and reviewing these events, you know, we have season two of um, Apple TV Plus's Make or Break. I, I'm a producer on and, and we're working on the episodes for, for next season. And, and they don't follow the events necessarily sequentially. They're more kind of subject focused, but, you know, we'll have an episode with the Betty Lou Sakura Johnson. And I'm like, oh, wow, like she had a great result, like at Sunset Beach and a pretty good result at Pipe. And then she didn't make the cut, you know, and, and, and I started kind of digging in. And there were a lot of those moments where on both the men's and women's side, where you think like, oh, that person got a pretty good result early on. They got one in Hawaii and then it just, it just cratered and, and they couldn't scramble their way back. And, you know, I, I wasn't on the ground in Australia this year, but I did, I was in Garajagon and it was very interesting. And, and, you know, talking to my colleagues that were on the ground in Margaret River, they said, this is, it's maybe the most emotional event we've ever been at because there are people that are going to be relegated to the Challenger series and it's becoming very, very real for them. And I was saying to them, you know, it, it is probably about as far away from the vibe as you can get for Garagegon because everyone was not only safe for the back five events of the year, but they'd secured qualification for the start of 2023. So it felt like, you know, despite the waves not being that great in Indonesia this year for our event, you know, this huge exhale for with all the surfers because they're like, oh, all right, we made it. We kind of got over the wall and now we can relax before these next few events. Yeah, no doubt. There was there was a couple things throughout the year that were like that. It was it was all about making the cut, and then it's focused. Then it changed all about the top five. So you saw that incredible shift after Margaret's, and yeah, the Margaret's event was really heavy. There was so many heats that you know that was it. You had you know you know Joao's heats were incredibly emotional. That interview was super powerful. You know you had Connor Coffin. He went from making the final five, and he needed to make his heat at Margaret's and missed the cut. It was just it was just so really hard to watch because he's such an amazing surfer and to, and to not make the cut. So the drama was incredibly high at that event. The vibe was, was like nothing I've ever seen at, at, a, at a contest. Like people were really nervous and anxious and, you know, on what days to run, what type of surf they were going to get. There was, it was high, high drama, which, you know, I've talked to a lot of people since I got home and they were like, wow, that was so intense. And um, a lot of people loved it. A lot of people thought, you know, a lot of people don't, don't like the cut. A lot of people do like it. There's there's a lot of debate on that, obviously. But in the end, I think then it shifts to the top five, and that's the focus uh, from Margaret's on. And we saw we saw that, and and some of the things I noticed with that was if the guys felt like or girls felt like they weren't going to make the top five, they sort of lost a little bit of interest towards the last two or three events. So that was something that I picked up on as well. But then 
ultimately with you know uh the last couple of events and when we got to tahiti with the drama of the top five was just insane but you know like lakey's heat against brisa came down winner goes into the top five griffin battle with kanoa was insane it was so interesting and you know i had so many debates with my friends every day like who's gonna make it who do you think um it was really interesting and really intense there as well yeah having been on the on the ground for those first five events you know you had you know kelly slater and moana jones wong win the billabong pro pipeline you got Brisa hennessy and barry mamiya win the hurley pro sunset beach i might just pause there you know for the hawaii events but pretty radical obviously seeing you know a near at that point near 50 year old kelly slater win at pipeline although i guess for a lot of us that have been around it that long you know spots like pipe and spots like tahiti and spots like cloud break just it still feels like he's a walk-up start to make at least the quarters if not win the event is that fair from from your perch as well when it comes to kelly slater and some of these critical waves it is, but I think we forget how amazing it is. You know what he what he did because right. he is still he's still so relevant in those ways. You just watched him in Tahiti just a week ago; it was unbelievable in the free surfs and in the event. But that was the best win I've ever seen in my life. It was it was so spectacular the way he did it and walking up late to pipe with no real preparation, coming from Florida, and just the connection he has with that wave and being able to do it against. Those guys at that level, like like Baron and those guys who surf there every swell, I mean, it was just out of this world. I mean, it still gives me chills to think about watching it. I was made a bunch of bets with my friends that he was going to win, and I was screaming and yelling, and we had just such a good time. It was like, <laughs> I don't know. It, it was it was just, yeah, the, the best event I've ever seen, definitely the best win I've ever seen him have. And just being on the beach that whole day, watching it all go down, it was pretty memorable. There's been no shortage of um, punditry and speculation about why didn't he go out on top? You know, why didn't why didn't he leave after the win at Pipeline and say, you know, that's my swan song, and, and I, why couldn't figure out a better way to end my career? I couldn't dream up a better way to end my career. And I, I want to say that Kelly's even been fairly candid about that too. At least being like, I, I'm kind of thinking I thought I'd do that, but. Once he won, there was a lot of debate on our side if he, if he was going to turn up to Sunset Beach or Portugal or do the rest of the year. But in my brain, I kind of thought it, it's a little bit like, you know, Lestat from Interview with a Vampire. As soon as he gets a taste for winning, the fangs come out. And I'm sure in his brain, he's just like, I'm going to be in the finals. Like, of course. So why would I hang it up? For sure. I think that's exactly where, where he went. He just went, wait a minute. I've won lowers like six times. I have one win. You know, you start doing the math going, well, I could win Tahiti as well. I've, I'm crazy successful at J-Bay. Even more recently, he's had some results there. I thought he was going to do it after Pipe. I was like, I think he's going to get in the top five. And then his performance at Sunset was like one of the worst seats I've ever seen him surf. It was, I think, the overlapping format. He went way up the point, got just had a terrible heat, um, kind of like the one he just had in Tahiti where he was just really off the mark. So... But I, I totally agree with you. I think his mind just instantly went to, I got a shot at the title. I think he watched lowers last year and was like, hey, if I'm in a single day event and I'm on a heater and everything goes right, I, I think I still have a shot at this. And I know he believed that. And um, I believed it. I was like, maybe he can squeak in the top five still. And um, But man, yeah, I debated the same debate. Like all my friends and almost everyone I talked to is like, man, that was the perfect time for him to kick out. Why didn't he do it? You know, it just would have been the, the ultimate sort of Michael Jordan. I'm 
going out on top and but then Jordan made his comeback. And so yeah, I think it's hard to stay away. You're just so addicted to to that feeling. There's nothing like it. And uh, I'm super stoked he didn't retire. Uh, I hope he does it for a long time. It's just, he's just so interesting to still have around the events. and such a huge draw. And he's still so crazy relevant. It's ridiculous. It, it's so funny because I'm in my, uh, my 17th year at the ASPWSL. And I remember when I started... It, it was a sport and an organization and a surfing industrial complex. It was really kind of wrestling with itself around like this insecure kind of grasping at mainstream acceptance. But it was one of those funny things where it's like, you don't have to pretend to be something you're not. It's actually like, you're going to be accepted by the masses, the truer you get to it. And, and Kelly, when I came on in late, it was early 2006, late 2005, was still like the vessel for that, you know, but, but trying to work with him from any standpoint, and I didn't have to do it directly when I started, but it, people were trying to say like, oh, he's the, this of surfing or the, that of surfing or the, this of surfing. But even back then I'd kind of thought like, he's gone so far beyond the horizon of what, you know, human potential is. There really isn't a comp, you know, where you're like, you should do it like this person because it worked for that person, because he's really in a league of his own. And it's, I, that was 17 years ago and here we are like in 2022 and it's like yeah I'd, I'd love to see him keep going because it's like why not absolutely i feel the exact same way i think um you know with pipe starting in, in that schedule you know you, you know he's going to do pipeline next year he just to surf it and again he'll be faced with the same question if he does well because i mean i think at his point in time it'd be really easy to pick like three events and go hey i'm gonna right do Tahiti, do Pipe, and maybe I'll do J-Bay and just sort of, you know, maybe I'll commentate a few and go get a bunch of perfect waves. He's, he's such a freak for wanting to get, he hates missing good waves anywhere in the world. And he's still so freaked out about someone scoring and him not being there, which is probably why, or it is why he's so good because he's so obsessed with, with scoring waves and getting super barrels. And, but yeah, he's going to be faced with the same questions. And it's not like he's going to be any worse next year than this year. You know, if he, he's surfing a lot lately and, and he looks really healthy and he's crazy fit working on his body still, like he could go a lot longer, which is super weird to say. It, it wasn't designed with this intention in mind, but it does parallel for me back when he was sponsored by Quicksilver and Quicksilver had the opening event of the year on the Gold Coast. So he would always turn up to that event, even if he was like, I'm done, I'm retired, I won a lot of world titles and da da da. He would always turn up to that event because it was his sponsor's event. And his track record there is was so silly. Like he'd do so well there. So oftentimes he'd do well enough to the point where the public momentum was like, you have to go for another world title. And he'd be like, all right, so he'd go down to Bells. I guarantee there were probably five years in that span where he didn't want to do the tour, but it just like the collective momentum after that first event really pushed him in there. So I think we might see something similar with Pipeline, as you pointed out. Yeah. And I think the way he does the tour now is like, it's really different, right? He's He shows up Last second, always, he tends to look like he's having a really good time, plays a lot of golf. It's not like he's grinding warm-up sessions like everybody else at Margaret River five days before the event. You'd never see him right. free serve anywhere at, at the events before his heat. So I think he's taking it like, hey, when I'm competing, I'm going to put a lot into it. But it's not he's not living and dying on these events like, say, Kanoa or Griffin or Italo or Lakey Caroline. Those, those people that are just so focused on, on being there and winning that event, you know? 
Totally. You know, go, going now that we've given Kelly his due, or I'm sure we'll have to do that again at some point, but, you know, looking at the, the upcoming generations of surfers, you know, uh, he was paired with a, a very impressive wildcard win from Moana Jones Wong at Pipeline. She was just so dominant. And then at Sunset Beach, you had Costa Rica's Brisa Hennessy, who actually fell off the CT last year, earned her way back on via the Challenger Series, and then won Sunset Beach and, and was world number one, which I think was a great kind of proof point for how those two tours can interact. And she was joined by, um, you know, wildcard Baron Mamiya, who performed well at Pipe and then won Sunset, and, and he was world number one after that. Um, and, and, you know, we go to Portugal, Tatiana Weston-Webb, Griffin Colapinto, Bells Beach, Tyler Wright, Felipe Toledo, Margaret River, Jack Robinson, Elizabeth Nichols. I, I, I blew through those first five events because I know you were on the ground, but, you know, looking at what you saw in those first five events through the prism of who eventually qualified for the Rip Curl WSL finals, were there any performances that stood out for you you know, even mental performances, I guess, on either the men's or women's side across those first five events? Yeah, there was definitely a few. Um, it was interesting that the, the wildcard topic was a big one. I mean, Moana really dominated Pipe, and that was a that was an eye-opener for the women. I think had the swell stayed a little smaller and been backdoor, uh, I think Carissa, Tyler, Lakey, who were in that battle, may have been able to beat her. But once it turned into sort of real Pipe in those lefts, I think she was just so dominant. So I think the message was really clear when the girls left pipe that they got to get better at sliding down the face backside and getting, getting under the hood and, and making those bigger lefts. Baron at sunset was pretty insane. No one expected that. That was really cool to watch. He's kind of the hometown here with his friends there. He served really consistent and really well. And, you know, I think going on from there and qualifying was a huge story. But on the men's side, the real standout, I think, in the first five events and just taking control of of the world title race was Felipe. I mean, his, his performance at Bells was insane. I think it was a heat against John John where he just, he just went lights out. He went to another gear on one of the bigger days and, mm. and threw down a couple high nines in one of those heats where I was like, wow, I've never seen Felipe surf that good in my life. It was, it was like one of those statement heats, like this could be his year. And then on the women's side, it kind of flip-flopped with a bunch of different winners at first. You know, you had Tati winning in Portugal that she came from behind and didn't have some results. Uh, Carissa was really consistent, um, super strong in every event. So they, that started to take shape early on. Um, but yeah, I think from the, from the girls' side, the, the Moana dominating pipe was the big story. And on the men's side, for me, it was Felipe's performance. And even at, even um, some of Felipe's heats at Margaret's in, in the years before and that year, last year, he was really strong. Yeah. And then obviously post mid-year relegation, you know, we're in Garage Gone, Jack Robinson, Joanne DeFay take home the wins, El Salvador, Steph Gilmore, Griffin Colapinto, uh, Sakurama, Felipe Toledo, Chris Amore, uh, J-Bay, which was pumping, you know, Tatiana Westenweb, Ethan Ewing, which was rad to see. Um, and then Tahiti, Courtney Conlog and, and Miguel Pupo, who collected his first CT win after nearly a decade. Um, since his rookie season, if you had to balance the the pre relegation events and the post relegation events, do you feel like the the same kind of contenders performed consistently across the year, or did you feel like people switched on in the back half compared to the first half that that ended up you know paying dividends for them in terms of qualifying for the finals? Yeah, that's super interesting. I I feel like a little bit of the same, but there was a bit of a shift. I think with like on the men's side with 
with Jack Robinson, Ethan, and Griffin just absolutely blitzing and and kind of becoming these new world title contenders right before your eyes, and even Kanoa to, to some extent with his consistency. That to me happened a little more in the back half of the year, especially with Ethan's performance at J Bay. You know, Jack Robinson just was amazing all year. His performance at Margaret's and and G Land and just how clutch he became, like always in the back half of heats when he needed a score, he got it. He just to me, he was this year he's been the most in tune surfer and mentally the strongest, kind of like Gabriel Medina in the past, where you just had this feeling like Jack's gonna pull it off. And it was insane to watch. Like he wasn't someone I thought at the start of the year was gonna be that surfer. So for me, he's the the biggest surprise and the the most confident surfer on the tour right now. And he's got, he's kind of taken this thing by the reins and went, I'm, I'm going to win this title. And you can see it in his performances and how he approaches events. And uh, I don't particularly think lowers is his strongest wave, but man, oh man, is he on a roll right now? So he's going to be tough, but I was really impressed with those three, uh, Ethan Griffin and, and Jack um, on the men's side. And then on the women's side, to me, the, the best performance I thought was Tatiana on her backside at J Bay winning that event. And hmm. there was a, I think it was the semis where she was going so tight to the pocket and just surfing really confident and strong. And, you know, her getting so close last year with a second. Um, I feel like she's just really determined in, in that in that mindset right now where she I think she's gonna be really tough at lowers. Um so yeah, those were those were some of the back half of the year highlights for me. And then you know, in Tahiti, Courtney um, was really comfortable. You could tell from heat one. I always thought she would be the toughest uh, there. I don't think a, pe- a lot of people realized how good her backhand tube riding, her technique is. Um, so I knew she was going to be super strong. And it was it was really cool to see her win because she's always so strong and so good in heavy water waves. And that was a that was really epic to watch. You know, one of the things that you touched on um and something that I've been thinking about a lot too is the idea of of mental strength, you know. And and we had Tatiana um, on uh, last week's episode of the lineup, and she was so candid about what psychologically it did to her last year at the finals, arguably and, and almost inarguably, coming one turn away from winning a world title. And she's like, "I couldn't surf. I didn't surf pretty much from." The finals up until like a week before pipe. I was traveling with my husband, Jesse Mendez on the Challenger series. I had to leave. Like it really, really did a number on her. And so I I bring that up because she, it it really almost derailed her start to the 22 CT. She, you know, she had two poor results. Then she comes back with a win in Portugal. She, she rallies, she gets that win in pumping um, waves at Jeffrey's Bay. And now she's back in the finals this year, which is to me, just really impressive from a a mental strength standpoint. And the other person you mentioned too, and and just as someone who's observed, you know, elite level surfing as long as I have too, is I, I wouldn't have picked Jack Robinson to be someone that just feels so psychologically sharp to the point where outside of the very, very serious waves of consequence that we've seen him dominate for a long time, be so good in some of these other um, waves. Obviously, you know, Margaret Rivers is home, but that's that's not always an easy thing. But, you know, backhand and kind of small garage gone, just really impressive stuff. And it does feel like that mental strength's getting a little bit more of its due in terms of in terms of being able to compete at this level. Uh, it's a really good point. I mean, 
in this sport, confidence is everything. And that having that strong mind and, and having that confidence and being dialed in your program with your, with your coaching, with your traveling, with who you're around, who you surround yourself with, all these things that go into it. And those, those highs and lows are so radical. Like mentioning Tatiana, you know, if she makes that turn last year, she's the world champ and she fell. Um, and those are really hard to recover from. A lot of, you look back in the history of the sport, there's, a, there's quite a few surfers who never got the world title. They got second a lot and they struggled in years after with, with dealing with that. A few of my really good friends actually. And that's, uh, so credit to Tatiana to bouncing back so, so quickly, like you said. And um, yeah, Jack's been impressive with that. I think Ethan's found his confidence. I think Kanoa's crazy confident. And you look at almost every surfer in the top 10 at some point throughout the year, they look invincible or, or like where, when they start to know and believe that they can do it, that's when the light switch goes off. You saw it with Griffin getting two wins. And um, once you kind of get that win or that moment or that nine point ride, it just, you just see them lift and go, okay, I deserve to be here. I, I belong. Now I'm going. And that's sometimes really what it takes is just one key moment that will turn around your entire year. And and um, yeah, it's it's hard too with all the travel, with the stress, and you know you got sponsors and you've got all these things just weighing down on you to perform, and it's it's hard to to do your best surfing with all that when you have all that pressure on you. It's um it's an art form to get it all right, and um, yeah, when you do, that's that's when you see the brilliant performances. On that uh, subject of invincibility, you know, one of the interesting things on the men's side this year, you know, we've talked about Kelly's sailed so far over the horizon. He's sort of an outlier in, in a field of outliers. But, you know, we've had generational kind of title holders since Kelly as well. You know, we had Mick and Joel and uh, all, all these sort of figures that filled that that space um, in, in the years, uh, you know, in the midst of Kelly's dominance, I guess, too. But but recently, especially this year on the men's side, you know, we had Gabriel Medina. He was the reigning three-time world champion. He took the first half of the year off. He came back at G-Land. Um, while he didn't win the event, he did look scary invincible, I thought, just being on the ground and watching him, like, cruise through these heats and, and, and again, like, just making the, the world's best surfers look very vulnerable against him until he eventually was stopped. And then um, he ended up hurting himself. He had to pull out. And then John as well, uh, you know, another uh, two-time world champion who who had to pull out as well um, after a knee injury. So you kind of have this power vacuum on the men's side that does feel like an opportunity for, you know, the people you mentioned, you know, your Felipe, Jack, Ethan, Italo, and Kanoa to kind of move in and establish themselves as the best surfers in the world right now. It feels like a very interesting time in, in men's surfing. It, it is. And it's a super good question. Um, and, and I do feel like it was a chance for some of these other surfers to to lift their game and rise and beg the question of like, how would they have done if John and, and Gabriel were healthy this year? Like, what would the top five have looked like? I, I personally do believe that uh, Gabriel and John are, are definitely the best two surfers in the world still. But I think that this young group has made a huge jump this year with Ethan Kanoa um Felipe uh even Griffin missing the cut with the two wins and, and Jack you know I feel like those next year is going to be incredible with a healthy John and Gabriel to see how those guys match up because I think they're a lot closer now right and I think the gap has has shrunk on the men's side on the women's side I was really interested in in the 
early in the year in how the young girls were going to do because they came out of the gate so strong in Hawaii. And, you know, you've got this really good energy right now on the girls' side with how good that the young crop is. And I think some of the girls not even on the tour right now are, are really turning heads. And that's super exciting for the sport. I think this Katie Simmers is amazing. I think Aaron Brooks is amazing. I think Sierra Kerr is amazing. I think Betty Lou is incredible. I think Molly Picklin is incredible. I, mm. I, I really can't wait for next year to see those girls mix in. And I really, I personally feel like 10 is too short on the women's side when you get to the cut of only 10. I think that a lot of the best stories in women's surfing uh, happened outside of those top 10. And I'd love to see a few more girls on the tour. I think there's too many young girls getting too good, too quick right now to cut it to 10. I feel like that needs to be bigger. That's just in my own personal opinion. It's an interesting point. And, and while you bring it up, I'm happy to go down this side street too and get your, your insights because I think it's a, it's, it's a topic I'm, I've been obsessed with for a long time, which is, you know, that surfing world is a, is a community obsessed with the cult of youth, right? Like, and you see that when it comes to endorsements, you see that when it comes to, you know, attention or the media attention or whatever, it, it almost is one of those things where, the value is about potential as opposed to achievement in a lot of ways where, you know, we've seen it for a long time where, you know, like young surfers with the potential to win a world title, get these big contracts and sometimes surfers that have just won a world title. They're like, they're kind of out the door. I think it's getting better than it was maybe sort of in the mid oddies where it felt pretty radical in some respects, but, but just in terms of being a young person who let's leave the mental maturity off to the side, just the physical maturation um, and, and just how different it is to perform at a pro junior QS level versus a CT level. We have seen a number of young surfers, both on the men's and women's side, qualify very young, right? Like 15, 16, 17. And I don't always know if that's the best thing because sometimes you see surfers kind of burn out really before they've had a chance to peak as an adult, as an adult athlete. So I'm saying a lot here, but but my the question I'm trying to get to is, you know, from your perspective, if you had to identify the ideal 10-year championship tour window to compete at from an age perspective, is it 15 to 25? Is it 18 to 28, 20 to 30? And I appreciate it. it's probably different for men and women. It's probably different person to person. But generally speaking, in terms of being at peak physical ability, what do you kind of identify as that window where you'd like to see people on tour? I think it's a little bit later. I think it's mm. more the 20 to 30 and you're, you're, you're seeing that right with the performances too. Cause um, yeah, I think that you can do it a little bit too young. I think Katie not doing the tour, whereas Caroline did do the tour at her exact same age is really interesting. Caroline was to me was pretty mature at her age and was pretty gun ho and, and ready to take on the world. And I thought she was ready to go and she, she sort of proved that she did well. Yeah. But then in Katie's case, I think it was smart to hold back because I feel like with those first five venues being pipeline sunset, you're thrown into that. And all of a sudden you're against Carissa Moore and Tyler Wright and Joanne Defay and 10 foot surf. It's a, it's a, it's a big hurdle, right? For a 15 year old to go stand on the beach at pipeline and look over and see you know, you're against Carissa Moore. It's that's, that's heavy. But I think, yeah, it begs the question a little bit. Me and my friends talk about it a lot. Should there be a rule of what's the age you could start doing the world tour? Because for mental health and these things with all the pressure that comes on a young athlete, it's a really good question. Um, you know, it, but, but it's hard because every athlete's different. So putting an age limit on it, I think would be tough. Uh, you've also got the endorsement deals like, hey, 
these athletes, when they're on the tour, they make a lot more money than when they're off the tour and that's in their contracts. And so they're making these big decisions. Like, so for me, I, I think the, the, the prime years are more than the 20 to 30 age range and even beyond that. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting one from, I guess, my day job and, and, you know, working with our team on like design of, of the tours and competition framework and, and, and those structures, um, because you're totally right, you know, and I actually think if an, I know there used to be a rule, I don't know if there currently is one, but I'm pretty sure the rule is 18, but then anyone that qualifies younger, they get like an automatic waiver if they apply for it kind of thing. And it is hard. It's hard to say like, you have to graduate high school or whatever, because it's different in different countries and we're a global sport. But I do think moving forward, it is sort of something where, you talk to the brands and the surf industry and you talk to the WSL and how they're structuring, you know, whether it's the pro junior, the regional qualifying series, challenger series, and not so much create hard and fast rules, but just create like the wet clay structure so that if someone is performing very, very well at 17, but maybe they're not ready for the CT, as you pointed out, they're not missing out by not taking their spot, whether financially or just opportunity-wise. There's a place for them if they want to stay and take another year to mature. I kind of feel like that's where we're heading. We're not there yet, but it, it is something where I think it's like the WSL can't solve it on its own. The industry can't solve it on its own. It's going to be kind of this collaborative thing where you know the community gets together and says, these are the ideal spaces um, for different age surfers to end up. And of course, even once it's established, there's always going to be outliers, right? Where it's like, here's a 16-year-old that has their shit together and they're ready to win the world title off they go yeah totally that's why i don't think you can put an age limit on it because everyone's so different like you said every country is so different but i do feel like the the important thing is that you're building them for success and long careers and not burn out and not this mental fatigue and all those things are super super important to a young athlete it's not a new phenomenon either. I'll go back to the Bill Ballard's Archie. I, I think everyone talked about like Archie and David Eggers, like going, turning pro and going on tour as teenagers, you know, and, um, I, I want to say it was Jeff Booth, but I think he was very funny where he just goes, Oh, this is going to be nuts. Like we are all like, this is going to be nuts. Like, I hope they do. Okay. Like it was just kind of like so wild west that everyone was hands off and being like, all right, let's give them a lot of money and see what happens. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. There's, there's, there's a lot of cases when I first started the tour too, but those two are, are really good examples. It was, they were both so talented and everyone thought they were shoe-ins for world titles someday and it didn't work out that way. But that was, yeah, I, I traveled with Archie to South Africa when he was like 15 or 16. It was, it was pretty wild, but he was crazy talented. But um, yeah. yeah, a lot of, a lot of good memories of those, those times. But yeah, in, in, in those cases, you know, Taj, uh, Barilla held back a year. I think it worked great for him as well. He felt like, you know, I know Maurice Cole, he was working with him. He felt like, hey, you're good enough to qualify the next year. Let's let's wait a year. And yeah. in both those cases with Katie and Taj, and, you know, it looks like Katie's going to qualify easy again this year. So it worked out. It worked out good. I think that's a good comparable. You know, going back to the um, outer known Tahiti Pro, you brought up that really cool story, right? Where it's like, you know, we're building this framework out to create these momentum points and create stakes and amplify the stakes in a way that elevates the surfing and doesn't compromise it. And I think, you know, we we're never perfect, but but we've moved in some really good directions. And one of the stories you brought up was just, you know, that that spot for the finals coming down between that match between Lakey and Brisa. It was such a cool story on the day. You know, another one that was percolating through 
the event, even from the start, was that idea of who's going to hold the men's number one spot, right? Because you had Felipe Toledo, who'd had a, a lights out year. You had Jack Robinson, who was very, very dangerous. And I, I, I am of the opinion that it's really unfair to kind of label to um, Felipe as someone who's uh, uh, not an elite level surfer in critical waves. I think he's had a little bit of bad luck. I do think sometimes that psychology gets to people as well, where he has this nightmare opening round heat. He doesn't really get any waves and he knows what everyone's saying about him, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd have to think that plays on his mind. And then, you know, you've got someone like Jack who, who historically is very, very lethal in waves of consequence. We had a big swell for Tahiti and, if it weren't for kind of a rampaging Nathan Hedge, you could be looking at a situation where Jack was the number one seed heading into lowers. And I bring this up because I'm curious to get your insights on that didn't happen, but but Felipe had to kind of figure out how to distance himself from not the ideal Tahiti performance he wanted and really focus himself on the finals. That can't be an easy thing to do. I think it's probably really hard on him. Um I mean, I was there watching all the warmups and just the lead up. I was staying in the same uh, place uh, as Jack. I was staying with Lakey right next door. Um, so watching all that go down, um, I really expected Philippe to just kind of go Rambo mode and just kind of show everyone, hey, I'm going to charge no matter what. I'm going to give it a solid dig. And I was bummed that he didn't do that watching the heat. His first round, he, he, he was eight foot pumping. There was some really good waves coming to him. He opted not to take off on him. And yeah, I was like, Philippe, just, just have a dig. You're so talented and so good in these waves. And he just decided, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, maybe he was thinking I'm going to save myself for lowers. On the other hand, you had Jack just going full Rambo mode, every free surf. He was the best guy there. Um, I really thought Jack was going to take the number one spot because it looked like Philippe just kind of wasn't interested in Tahiti. Even in the warmups, he wasn't really, I didn't see him free surfing. Maybe he was, but it felt to me like he kind of just went, Hey, you know what? I'm going to focus on winning lowers this year. And I'm just going to kind of let it happen here in Tahiti. Whatever happens, happens. I'm going to have a good time. So I think that may play into his performance at lowers as much as he is probably trying to block it out as he should. And is as incredible as he is at lowers, I feel like there'll be a lot of pressure on him this year at lowers and a lot of people chatting about what, what we just brought up about his performance at places like pipeline and, you know, Chopu. And if you look at past world champions, you, you know, you look at John, John and Gabriel and Kelly Slater, and you know, they, they all are incredible surfers at Chopu and pipeline. So Philippe's had this amazing year. And at times where he's definitely been the best surfer of the year, as, as we talked about earlier, like at bells and a few of these other spots, but, you know, to be the world champion, you've got to perform in all the all the venues and the way the format's set up, you know, maybe you don't because he didn't perform at Pipe and Tahiti and he's still the favorite at Trussell. So I, I, I think Philippe's an awesome guy and an incredible surfer and he'll be a super worthy world champ if he wins. But I was just really rooting for him to, to really go for it and just kind of show the world, hey, everyone shut up. I'm incredible at, at Chopu. But he decided not to in, in those in those key moments. The next heat, he did redeem himself a bit with some sevens. And it was the next day when it was a fair bit smaller. And, you know, maybe he just didn't want to get hurt, like I said. So um, I'm a huge Philippe fan and I want him to, to do well and he'll be a worthy world champ. But man, I was rooting for him to just kind of take charge into you. Yeah. Well, high, high drama at the end of the road. Um, we're going to do uh, one more break to get a word in from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to get Mike Parsons breakdown of the upcoming WSL Final Five. We'll be right back. 
So we are, again, this is going to land on the eve of the 2022 Rip Curl WSL Finals. And I wanted to take this opportunity having you on to kind of dissect um, the strengths and weaknesses of each of our contenders heading into the event here at Lower Trestles. Um, you know, your background as an elite level competitor yourself, as an elite level coach, you've seen so much in surfing. I, I'd, I'd love to get kind of your unfiltered thoughts on on strengths and weaknesses so i will i will start um on the women's side um and we'll start from the back and we'll move forward so someone like stephanie gilmore seven-time world champion had the opening heat last year as the number four seed didn't work out for her. looking at the likely conditions for lower trestles this year what would you kind of peg as the chief strength and chief weakness for someone like stephanie gilmore I think the way the forecast looks, four to five foot lower, Stephanie's going to be deadly this year. She definitely would have learned from – Stephanie's not really a morning surfer. She doesn't surf good heats first thing and off the bat. She tends to build momentum. And if you're going to beat Stephanie, you usually beat her in the earlier rounds. So I think if she can beat Brisa in that first heat, she could run the table and get all the way to, to Carissa. I think she has a good chance. I There's been some performances in the past at lowers where she's been the best surfer out there. I remember a few – high nines or maybe even tens in events past. If it's four foot rights, I think she's deadly. And I, I even think that if she just had one heat to surf or two against Carissa, that's a real coin toss. Um, obviously running the table and, and winning the title is going to be really tough, but Trestles is a perfect way for Stephanie. I still think she has the magic. She's going to be super tough to beat this year, in my opinion. I, I think she wins that opening heat against Carissa. Yeah. And do you think that weakness is almost the same as last year, which is she's not a morning heat competitor and that's really kind of the thing. Like she's just going to have to get through it. And if she does, she may build that momentum. I do think that that'll be the case. And I think her losing last year will be fresh in her mind. And, and I think Trestles is the perfect venue for her. She just, her style and how she rides a four to five foot right is still as good as anybody in the world. And if she's if she's hungry, I know she will be. Um, yeah, I think uh, you couldn't have a better final venue for Stephanie than Lower Trestles. Brisa Hennessy uh, wasn't actually on tour at this point last year. She'd fallen off, and, and as we talked about, how to work her way back on via the Challenger Series. She's now world number four. She's going to face Steph in the opening round. Strength and weakness for Brisa Hennessy. Her strength are her frontside carve. She has a really strong frontside carve. She's ultra consistent and strong. If she has a big closeout section at lowers, I could see her doing some big layback finishes. Um, she's strong on her backside. She's a really strong competitor. Mentally, I think she's really strong this year. I think Glenn Paul's done a really good job in building her confidence. Um, she's going to be tough because Brisa is going to be ready. That's, that's what Stephanie's got to be careful of. Brisa is going to put the work in. I've already seen her down there surfing really good two weeks in advance. So her strength is going to be, she's going to probably try to jump on a lead with Stephanie, get some scores on the board. Stephanie will probably wait and Stephanie needs to be careful that it, it goes quick and Brisa could build a lead and, and create an upset there. So she's really consistent, strong-minded, has a great front side wrap. Those are all her strengths. Any weaknesses for Brisa? Uh, yeah, I just think that Talent-wise, when when it comes right down to it, if the waves are firing and they both have opportunities, I don't feel she's um, as quite as good of a surfer as Steph. So if they're matched, Reese is going to have to wind up on better waves to, to beat her. I think um, Stephanie just has a little more talent uh, to me on, on a right point. 
So the winner of that opening match is going to face uh, last year's world runner-up, someone we've talked about a little bit already, uh, Tatiana Weston-Webb. You know, looking at Tati this year, compared to last year, maybe with the experience of last year, positive and negative, what would you say Tati's assessment is for this year's event? Well, certainly uh, last year will still be weighing on her pretty heavily, um, but she's had such a strong year. And at moments throughout this year, like J-Bay and a few other events, she's been the best surfer there. She's gotten way better at her surfing. She has a wicked frontside layback now. Her, she's surfing tighter to the pocket. Her backhand surfing has improved. She looks stronger. She's got her swagger going. She's like, she knows she can win. She's got good information from Ross Williams. You know, she has a solid program. And I, I just feel like she's going to be confident and, and go there to win and thinking she's going to win. Yeah, I think she's gotten way better than last year. So that's her that's her biggest strength. She's a better surfer. Yeah. And she'll be mentally stronger than last year because of the losses. So she's going to be deadly at lowers. But I still think, you know, with that forecast, I still would put my money on Stephanie to to beat her because I just think Stephanie and if she's if she's hitting her stride on those rights can be can be Tati. Yeah. Point of difference, you know, we talk about a lot. We yeah. Pretty much at every event, you know, Tatiana being the only goofy footer on the women's side this year. Do you think that's an advantage for her in the sense of it will be different surfing than Steph Gilmore? Obviously, if they're both going right, and and maybe because they hadn't seen you know a backhander yet, um, that that could help. Yeah, I definitely think it could. That point of difference, you can definitely get tighter in the pocket on your backhand, and lowers is a really good wave to go right on. The other thing we're not really touching on is it could be lefts. You know, you have high tide and if the swell has a little more west in it. The lefts get really good. And Tati could use that to her advantage as well. We saw Joanne DeFay last year against Stephanie. In the morning, the tide was a little higher and she got a couple quick lefts and beat Stephanie that way. We saw Gabriel win the title on, on those lefts as the tide got higher. So yeah. yeah, I think the point of difference on your backside is a really good point. If Tati's surfing tighter to the pocket than, than Stephanie or Brisa, if Brisa wins, that, that will be something that could be an advantage for sure. Yeah. Well, and you just brought her up. The number two seed, whoever whoever makes it through those opening two matches is Reunion Island, Joanne DeFay. W- one of my favorite stories, just because of she just came out of, I mean, she's been on tour for a number of years, but but really came out of not one of the major surfing centers and really had to fight hard to get on tour. And it just continuously is just so psychologically sharp. She's so good in reef break. She's such a sound surfer. She's riding for O'Neill now, which I think is is w- well earned in a lot of ways. And I just I really like her. But I'm I'm curious to get your read on her strengths and weaknesses at lower trestles. Oh my God, she's so strong, top to bottom. Mentally, um, her surfing's gotten way better in the last years. Her consistency's crazy. She's kind of reminds me of. Her surfing is way different, but she's a lot like Sally in the sense that mm. she's always going to put like two sevens on the board. Like her competitive savvy is incredible. She's She reads the ocean really well. She rarely is in a position where she's coming from behind. She's, she's, she's consistent. She picks really good waves. She's crazy strong. She never falls. And she has some big turns. Like the, her her best turn, I think, is maybe her. I mean, her her backhand surfing is amazing. She always wins on the reef breaks going going backhand. But her front side closeout sort of layback jam is kind of rivaling Carissa these days, and is really strong. I think she could. I could see her using that to her advantage at lowers, and really just her 
consistency and her competitive paralysis is really strong. So, and again, she'll be one of those athletes that learned from last year and she was pretty heartbroken when she lost. So she'll be really tough this year. I, I expect her to be another gear up from last year down there. Yeah. And then the the monster at the end of the dream, you have the reigning five-time world champion, Carissa Moore, who is not enough can be said about how good of a surfer she is. Although I think she's even admitted that she didn't surf her best in the finals last year. And, and having been on the sands, observed how particularly rattled she was when she lost that opening match to Tatiana. Strengths and weaknesses for Carissa Moore at this year's event. Well, her strengths are her surfing and her just, like you said, she's an absolute beast on an open face, right or left. She's gotten incredibly good on her backhand. But um, when she has room to move and, and, a, and a right hand point break or, or anything where she has a little room to create distance and do those big swooping carves and big layback jams, and um, nobody does it better. And she does it better than, than some of the guys. She's unbelievable surfer. Um, so her talent, her surfing... That's her, that's her strength. Her, her weakness is, is mental. It's sometimes if you get a lead on her or you get an early start or you can rattle her where she can spiral the wrong direction. And, um, sometimes for as good as she is, I don't know why, but she loses her confidence pretty easily. And she usually rebounds and she can rely on her surfing to, to get her back and win because she's just so darn good. But. If someone can get a lead on her, win that first heat and really a- apply that pressure, they have a chance, but uh, it's a big task. I mean, I still think she's the best surfer in the world right now by, by a pretty big margin. It's, it's hers to lose for sure. Um, and she's dialed in with her equipment. She's dialed in at lowers. She's still hungry. She's still completely ready. And I, I think she's up to the, to the task and, and a huge favorite, but. Those other, those other four, four girls have a really good chance as well. Um, I think it'll be someone close. I mean, I honestly think Stephanie will get to the final. I just have a feeling that it'll be Steph against Carissa. But I think at that point, I think Steph will be pretty gassed if she can get there. Um, like I said earlier, I think if they were matched up right off the bat in a final, that's a, that's a 50-50 for me when Steph's really on her game. But I think I think um, Carissa would beat her if she can get there. So just she'll just be fresh and... And ready to go. Interesting. Well, switching to the men's side, the opening match is between two surfers whom y- you have a lot of experience with both of them, actually. You've got uh, Kanoe Garashi, who you, who you manage, and then Italo Fajera, who I, I believe you've coached in the past or at least sort of worked with a little bit. How do you see that opening match going between the both of them? You know, what are the, uh, they're very different surfers, but what would be their strengths at lowers compared to their weaknesses? Uh, it's a super good heat. Um, Kanoa obviously has been pretty brilliant this year, um, has had some crazy heats. He actually had a come from behind win against Italo. I think it was at J Bay in the, in the dying moments. So they've had a, uh, I think it's two to one Kanoa advantage between the two. Um, I worked with Italo last year during the finals at Lowers, so got to hang out with him for a couple of weeks, and his preparation was incredible. The guy doesn't leave anything to doubt. I mean, he's he'll be there early. He'll put the time in. He's got mad skills. His, obviously, his his aerial game is is what has got him to where he's at, along with the surfing and heavy waves, like winning the title at Pipe. But I think Italo needs to make a, a little adjustment this year and go to go to the air and go. Go to his his what what's gotten him the biggest scores and um 
Last year it was kind of bigger and he had to surf against Philippe and it was mostly right. So it was a little lower tide and he didn't really get a chance to, to go to the air. And I think this year you're going to see a different Italo come out firing. And if it's, if it's lefts on like a mid tide, I could see him doing two reverses a wave with variations in his errors and crazy carves and lay everything. So I think you're going to see a, a really tough Italo in that heat. He hasn't served his best this year, not as good as the year before. And Kanoa has served his very best this year. So I think it's a really close toss-up. Kanoa has more experience at lowers. That one is so hard for me to to call a winner. I think uh, maybe I'd lean Kanoa in that one just because he's really on a roll right now and he's so confident and he has experience at lowers. But man, that's kind of a flip of the coin. And the winner of that match will face the, the current world number three, Ethan Ewing, who is actually on his second round on the championship tour. He qualified and then fell off and then, and then qualified again. But for the kid is so strong and, and has had so many comparisons to Andy Irons and, and all these other surfers. But it, it's been really cool this year to see him kind of hit his straps, particularly with that win and just pumping Jeffrey's Bay. It was such beautiful surfing. But, you know, at lower trestles, how do you think his particular approach is going to translate both both pros and cons, I guess. It's going to translate really good with the forecast. I think the better the surf, the better Ethan's chance is. Um, if it's five to five to six foot lowers, I think he's the favorite for me. I think he wins the world title. Um, mm. He's reminds me a lot of Mick, a lot of comparisons to Andy for sure, but he has every type of turn in the book. And if it's outside of going above the lip, I think he's the best surfer in the world right now. He's Reminds me of Mick. He's got variations in every single snap, wrap, carve, blast, layback gouges. He's got the power, like you mentioned. I think when he's on, like we saw at J-Bay, no one can can match without John John being on the tour or Gabriel. I don't think anyone matches his power. And if if it's five foot lowers, mm. I think he's throwing big high nines. It, it, I think it's, it's going to happen. Um, so he's deadly at lowers. I think the only way he gets beat is is by someone like Italo, you know, one of his competitors, Philippe, going to the air and just really doing that above-the-lip surfing mixed with the crazy cars and snaps. I think that's the only thing that can stop him because without going above the lip, I think he's the best surfer in the final five on the on the men's side. So he's going to be deadly. There's a few clips on his Instagram from last year at Lowers where I show him to Lakey and Caroline all the time. They laugh at me, but I'm like, this is as good as you could surf a wave. I mean, he does every type of crazy carb and he does it with such speed throughout and such flow and all those things. Like it's just, it's poetry, like perfect, crazy, radical, everything. So he's deadly. That's going to be the interesting thing. I think with Ethan and and almost pretty much every other surfer on the men's side is, as you pointed out, it's, it will kind of come down to the judges. Like if Ethan is a hundred percent on and, and he can go by the lip, but as you said, primarily on rail and, and fin drifts and doing these amazing maneuvers, and then someone like an Italo or a Jack or Felipe or Canoa are on as well, but they're taking it to the air. It'll it'll really come down to the judging to say, which surfing did you prefer more? Because you could get tens kind of either way in those conditions. So I think that's going to be really interesting. And someone who we've talked about a bit, but has kind of a foot in both realms, maybe not as strong a singular foot as, as you know, uh, Ethan on one side or Felipe on the other, but is Jack Robinson, who, as we've talked about, is 
really, really been impressive from a mental strength standpoint, but also just his ability to improve fairly dramatically in non kind of waves of consequence. How do you see Jack performing out at lower trestles this year? Oh, I think really good as well. Um, I've been watching him already uh, this past week and it's amazing to, to watch how good he's surfing out there. He's, he's so dialed in on what wave to take already. He's, he's really extra radical. I think he's going to have to maybe go above the lip to beat like an Ethan or Kanoa or Italo. So I, I feel like he probably will. Um, what, what really blows my mind about Jack is just his, his paralysis in the, in the ocean, like figuring out what wave to ride. Like I just, and this year watching him, under pressure moments, like I talked about a little bit earlier, getting the score when he needs it, five, you know, five minutes to go, needing a big score and performing at his very best on that wave, right when he needs it, like world champion stuff. So I feel like he's going to go in there thinking I'm winning the title right now and he might just do it. I mean, he's, he's that guy right now. And I feel like this year he's been the most impressive in terms of how much better he's gotten, how strong he's been mentally, how much he's improved, um, you know, all the all those things. I think lowers is not his best wave, I wouldn't think. He's he's best in hollow waves over a reef break, obviously growing up in Western Australia. But man, has he improved in all the other waves. So I wouldn't be surprised if he if he goes all the way and wins the title. Um, he's in a great spot in second. Whoever comes up against him is going to be deadly, though. And then you've got you know, the daunting task of Philippe, you know, the best surfer probably ever lowers waiting for you. So, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did it. Right. And maybe we've already kind of touched on Philippe's uh, weakness in just having to kind of psychologically overcome Tahiti to a bit. I, I'd maybe even throw in just the weight of expectation of he's been a title contender for so long and he's in pole position this year. And sometimes that's hard to kind of, focus on the task at hand when you're like, this is, this is supposed to come to me, you know? And, um, but then on the strength side, as you pointed out, he's maybe the best surfer ever at lower trestles. Is that a kind of a fair assessment on where you look at Philippe heading into this event? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it kind of like Carissa on the women's side, I think it's Philippe's to lose. I feel like, um, with his performance last year, he came so close against Gabriel. He was on a heater out there surfing incredible. Um, you know, watching him free surf out there, you know, he, he spends a lot of time living in St. Helene now. So I see him surf out there a fair bit and he can do everything. He can do the craziest, fastest lightning carves, every type of car, backside, front side. He can do every type of air, insane full rotations right into another crazy snap without even shuffling his feet. I mean, it's like video game surfing stuff. So if he can click into that, that Felipe that, that we know he does, he'll probably get the title, but. I do think there will be a lot wearing on him because you're you're expected to do it. You've been so close so many times before. That's a lot of pressure on his shoulders. He wants it so, so bad that, you know, if he can let go of that, serve very relaxed and aggressive and really go for it and get after it, I think, um, you know, he, he probably pulls it off. But yeah, it's 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 an interesting one because it's it's tough when you're expected to win. I feel like in my career, I always served my best when against the best guys when I wasn't expected to win. So, you know, that's when your your best performance has come out. So the true champions, a world champion can perform when they're expected to win. So so we'll see what he does, but he's definitely the favorite. 
Well, I'm excited. We uh, we did put a feeler out for questions from our uh, Instagram and Twitter communities at, at the Lineup Pod, and uh, we got a lot back, but we we we've whittled them down to uh, to three for you. So the the first question comes from at South Coast David, who asks, "Do you think there should be a regular season champ and a finals champ, kind of like in some other sports?" That's a good question. Um, I do, but it just doesn't seem like it would have the weight. I mean, the undisputed world champ is what every one of these athletes is striving for. So you, you, I think it would be cool to, to have acknowledged the winner of the season, you know, now that we have the final five. But to me, it's all about the world title. And that's, that's what they all are going for. It's almost like, you know, the, the QS winner is, is awesome. And it's, it's incredible feat for that athlete. But that athlete is, is, instantly thinking, how do I win the world title someday? So right. good, super good question. I do think they probably should have a season champion and integrate that into, into the format. But overall, it's all about the world champion. I can tell a funny story because it's never going to come to pass because it finally got shut down for dead. But we, we have talked about this at the WSL and, you know, we were toying around with like, okay, well, how do you create an award for the regular seasons champion that is honoring the performance but isn't sort of cannibalizing as you pointed out the undisputed world world title which you have to win at the finals and we kind of hovered around this idea of like well what if we called it the kelly slater award he's the greatest living competitive surfer of all time the final event is an outer known event which is his company it's in tahiti you know tahiti's yeah, chopu is uh, translates to the wall of skulls and i'd pitch this to kelly and he was into it and then i pitched it to everyone else and they hated it but i said what if because uh tiffany's wanted to work with us on a trophy i said to kelly i said what if we computer mapped your skull and the trophy was just this beautiful silver version of your skull and he looked at me like i was insane and then he kind of was like that's kind of cool and then i took it back to the wsl and they're like no fucking way <laughs> like <get out> of here. <laughs> i still think it's a good idea but i can share it with the world because it's not gonna happen yeah I, I think it's a pretty good idea too but yeah yeah um, next question is from at Willie Goat 0230 who asks, if Carissa wins the world title this year, what do you think her chances of overtaking Steph with the future roster that's coming on to the championship tour? So Steph, for listeners out there, she's got seven world titles. Carissa currently has five as of recording um, or as of posting, I could say. If she wins this year, she'll be at six, so she'll be one off of Steph. But as Mike uh, rightly pointed out, the generation that's coming on to the championship tour is no joke. But but if she does win this year, Mike, what, what do you kind of give her chances for potentially matching and then overtaking Steph? Um, I think her chances are really good. It just comes down to her motivation. If she, you know, she's at that age where she's probably starting to think about kids and those things and how long am I going to do this? She has, you know... Obviously, if she wins this year, she'll have six titles and a gold medal. But knowing Carissa and and just that looming tie with Steph or or even more, I think she'll probably go for it. And I think her odds are really high that she'll win the world title again next year. Um, it all comes down to motivation. I think if if she's all in and she wants that, I think she's the favorite again next year. Very cool. And the last question that we've uh, we've picked from our social media friends is from at underscore Freddie underscore six, who says, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's going to win the men's and women's titles this year? Oh, that's awesome. Um, I've been debating my friends about this uh, every day. I'm going to say 
Ethan Ewing with the with the comfort behind win, world champion on the men's side, and a Steph Gilmore final against Carissa Moore. Carissa Moore is six-time world champ. Um, I know that's not really going out on a limb, but I just think fresh and ready to go. Um, she wins. I think Ethan is just he's got the confidence right now and the, the dynamic surfing on the right. So I, I know. That's crazy to say with Felipe being as good as he is at lowers, but I just have a feeling. Uh, we'll see. I like it. Well, thanks to everyone who wrote in at, at the lineup pod. We are now down to our final segment for you, Snips. It is time for the lightning round presented by BF Goodrich. So these are 10 questions for you to answer as quickly as you can. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, which would you choose? Super easy thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Pizza. Last book you read? Ah, uh, it's been a while. Um, Into Thin Air by John Krakauer about the 1996 Everest tragedy. Climbing book. Great book. Best surf film ever? Free ride. One wave you never have to go back to? Oh, God, such a good question. Um, Brazil, beach breaks. If you only got to surf one wave for the rest of your life? Uh, that's another really good question. If it's really good and nobody out lowers. Uh, best person to share a lineup with? Uh, my son, Grant, who's 14. Worst person to share a lineup with? Oh, jeez. Uh, that's a hard one. Last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... Uh, having dinner with my wife and 14-year-old son tonight. Wonderful. Mike Parsons, thank you so much for coming on this special Rip Curl WSL Finals edition of the lineup. We are going to have a full in-depth episode with you in the future, but really, really appreciate your insights on the eve of this important event. And uh, yeah, I'll look forward to seeing you down there. Yeah. Awesome. Can't wait to see it. It's going to be so exciting. Um, crazy, great talent in it. Good forecast. So let's do it. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with California's Mike Parsons. I hope you enjoyed it. We are just days away from the world title deciding Rip Curl WSL Finals at Lower Trestles. The event window starts on September 8th and the event will stream live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. This episode is produced by Henry Beyer with art direction by Jason Penning, copywriting by Dan Willen, and additional support from Miguel Clemente. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that it is recorded and produced on the ancestor lands of the Chumash, the Kumeye, and the Wanenyo native people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs>